0: Welcome to All Business No Boundaries, a collection of supply chain stories by DHL Supply Chain, the North American leader in contract logistics. I'm your host, Will Haywood. This is a place for in-depth discussions on the supply chain challenges keeping you up at night. We're breaking beyond the boundaries that are limiting your supply chain. Let's dive in. Today's episode is Agility and Adaptability, Removing Boundaries and Revolutionizing Retail. My guest is Steve Dennis, who is currently president and founder of Sageberry Consulting, and the author of the book, Remarkable Retail, How to Win and Keep Customers in the Age of Disruption. Welcome, Steve. It's great to be with you today. Great to be with you. Thanks for inviting me on. Good, good. So I know you have a consulting business now and are an author, but preceding this, I know you have a long career in leadership positions across the retail landscape. I wondered if you might briefly take us through some of your resume, some of the organizations you've worked for, and then tell us a little bit about what Sageberry does and what you're up to these days.
1: Sure. Well, I think that's a nice way of saying I'm old, but uh, <laughs> I have been around in in retail for a while. I've actually spent most of my career in retail. After I got out of business school, I spent a couple of years at a large consulting firm. and was in the consumer packaged goods industry. But uh, way back in the early 90s, I joined Sears Roebuck and company and was there for sometimes people ask me how long I was at Sears and the honest answer is too long, but the chronological answer is about 12 years. And I had like 10 different jobs there in 12 years. I worked my way up through the ladder, bouncing back and forth from kind of strategy and marketing, I ran a large division there. Uh, I kicked off, well, this was like 1999, Sears early efforts in multi-channel integration, I guess what we'd call omni-channel today. And then I worked in strategy and worked on the land's end acquisition. So pretty diverse role across a lot of different categories of merchandise and a lot of different formats. And then I moved down to Dallas, where I am now, to be the chief strategy officer and head of multi-channel marketing for the Neiman Marcus Group. So that added a whole other layer of different kinds of customers, different sort of formats. And then for, I guess it's about 12 years now, I've been off on my own doing strategy and innovation consulting for retail. So we work with retail brands. We work for suppliers, tech companies, you know, kind of anybody in the broader or not anybody, but a wide, a wide range of folks um, in the broader retail ecosystem. And then kind of the way the consulting business evolved over the last five or six years is I also started writing for Forbes. And I started to do a lot more speaking and workshops and, and that sort of stuff. So it's a pretty broad portfolio of things, but it's it's been pretty interesting to have the opportunity to work across a really wide spectrum of formats and customer types and
0: categories. Great, great. So I know we'll touch on a lot of the great stuff that you have in your book, but I want to kick us off here with something that you recently wrote as part of your Forbes gig and ask you to kind of explain and react to it. So I'll quote you here with If recent earnings announcements and conference presentations by less than remarkable retailers are any indication, we have entered a moment of high-fiving ourselves for our innovation and agility during, quote, unprecedented times and celebrating that a consumer is back. Call me skeptical. What's much more likely from where I sit anyway is that once the dust begins to settle, it will be glaringly obvious that the mediocre retailers that embarked on a timid transformation will continue to lose market share and deliver unimpressive investment returns. Conversely, those that accept the profound shift that the hybridization of retail represents will embark on a path of creative destruction that will not only solidify their competitive advantages, but unleash many exciting new growth opportunities. So there's a lot in there, and I just <laughs> yeah, like to, that like <laughs> I don't to ask you that. maybe unpack <laughs> that a little bit for us and um, talk about. I think it's the conclusion of a much longer article, but what you mean by that?
1: Well, I think there are a couple of fundamental ideas in there. The part of that is the thesis behind my book and a lot of my speaking over the last few years: remarkable retail, which is this idea that the fundamental basis for competition in retail has really changed largely by virtue of this kind of almost infinite access to product and information. And so where you could get away with being even pretty mediocre in some cases because you had a unique location or set of products that were hard to access, a lot of those advantages have gone away primarily by virtue of the internet and e-commerce and so forth. So there's been this raising of the bar uh, in terms of what retailers need to do to be successful. It's also led to what I talk about in the book is the collapse of the middle, which is it's very hard to carve out a position being kind of a little bit of everything to everybody. So those retailers that watched a lot of this happen and haven't really reinvented themselves to get to a place of being remarkable uh, we've seen most of them either go out of business or continue closing stores or find themselves in trouble. This The second idea, which I kind of touch on a little bit in the book but I've really been exploring in the last year or so, is this idea of what I call the hybridization of retail across a pretty wide spectrum. So the idea that's probably most familiar to people, even though I maybe use a little bit different language, is how the consumer shopping behavior And a lot of retailers' business models have become hybrid in nature, you know, by being this blend of digital and physical. And I think by now, most retailers understand that digital drives physical and vice versa. But COVID particularly accelerated that. But even more, I think we're seeing the supply chain and even some retailers' go-to-market strategies become more hybrid in nature, where kind of a one-size-fits-all model is starting to evaporate. So that that's the shift I'm not sure people appreciate as much. But a lot of this is just the kind of constantly shifting of consumer behavior and what it takes to be successful in retail.
0: Gotcha. So, you know, another myth that's sort of out there is the notion of brick-and-mortar stores slowly dying maybe more rapidly because of the pandemic. Just as a consumer, I know I've seen some interesting stores move from online to brick and mortar, and I kind of wonder what that's all about. What's your take on how some of these retailers are moving across the spectrum?
1: Well, unfortunately, the, the facts don't really line up with the retail apocalypse narrative. It's definitely true that we've seen a lot of store closings and a fair number of bankruptcies across the last few years a big part of that has really very little to do with e-commerce or the pandemic it has to do with the US in particular it's not quite as true in some other markets but the US has been really building to this point of big misalignment between supply and demand like retail space particularly like in malls and among department stores grew at like three times the population growth so this This misalignment has been building for many years, and there was going to be a reckoning. But if you look at what's actually happened to physical retail in total, most of the store closings are concentrated among a very few number of retailers that kind of got stuck in the boring middle as I talk about it. And we've seen, and I think what you're alluding to is both some of these new digitally native vertical brands like Warby Parker that once raised money basically on this idea that they don't need stores we're seeing dozens of them opening hundreds of stores and that's because for certain occasions that physical retail really adds a lot of value and we're also seeing everyone from target to at home five below i mean there's a, a large number of quite sizable retailers that are opening many stores as well so What's really happening is kind of a reshifting of the balance. Where going back to what I was saying before, if you don't have this remarkable value proposition, it's very hard for you to be successful. And if you're really overinvested in physical retail, that's very unremarkable. You know, so for example, a lot of the moderate department store space, and some specialty apparel players, you know, there's <laughs> it's very difficult to continue your business. And then of course, COVID in some cases just accelerated what was um, not a very optimistic path they were already on.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, back to the comment about age earlier, it took a physical store for Warby Parker for me to buy glasses from them and take that experience on being able to kind of physically walk in and try things on in the store. So I guess it expanded their demographics at least by one. (laughs) It sounds to me like there's a lot of complexity as you start to introduce more and more variables. And I wonder, as you're advising customers or you're writing for audiences, how you help them think through the various layers of complexity. I mean, do they do they fully grip sort of all of the different variables at work? And if they do, how do they sort of align their thinking so that they can work through it in a logical way and make progress and not kind of get lost in all of the weeds?
1: Well, it certainly is. I think retail's as long as I've been in, it, it's been a pretty complex business, but it's, it's certainly gotten more complex over the last however many years. You know, a lot of times what I advise – folks to do is and you know some of this just sounds like really obvious advice i think but is to really understand kind of who's at the center of the bullseye for their customer base and the the purchase occasions they're trying to serve and try to dissect the customer journey in a pretty in-depth way and really to try to do three things one is identify those sources of friction or pain points or whatever you want to call them um, that may be causing customers to drop out of that customer journey with you. And, you know, that could be something you're doing in store. That could be something you're doing online or in search. I mean, there's a lot of different layers to that. But because so many more customer journeys have become digitally driven, typically I think what I find companies that are at least established often miss is they don't understand the degree to which digital and mobile uh, has changed the nature of the customer journey. So you're looking for pain points or friction points that perhaps you can address. Then there's also just understanding what is kind of the cost of entry or table stakes. And this is another place where I think many retailers assume that by doing something, they've really differentiated themselves when in many cases they're just catching up to what's become a new expectation. And then the third thing is, and this is really ultimately the more important thing, is to try to find those things might be one big thing. It might be a set of small things that really differentiate yourself. And so understanding how customers' behaviors and, and the customer journeys have shifted is often where retailers get behind, where they don't realize that they've got to really up the ante on the customer experience to have a chance of even getting the customer's attention in the first place what, what i think has also gotten more complex is you know on the one hand because of the internet the ability to access products from almost anywhere get reviews pricing information you know understanding different delivery times like you know that's that's so much more efficient today than it was in the past so you really got to understand just how to kind of stay in the game because of all this digital information that's available the flip side of that, particularly if you're a bigger company, is you've got competition, most likely from all sorts of newer players, whether that's online-only players, whether it's these digitally uh, native brands that are maybe going after a particular customer type or a particular product category in a little bit different way. So yeah, it has, it has a lot of complexity, but uh, you know, there's no choice. You've got to do that work, unfortunately, or you're likely to be falling behind.
0: Right, right, and you know, because we are on a supply chain podcast, I'll ask the same question, but sort of through the supply chain lens, you know, what implications do you see today and on the horizon from supply chain capabilities that retailers either need to have or need to get? And how are they coping with this current environment?
1: Well, that's another place where I think there's been this kind of increasing hybridization. What I mean by that is if you go back 20 years or so, again i'm not saying supply chain was ever easy but it was pretty straightforward if you were talking about direct to consumer it was mail order catalog or the early stages of e commerce and for the most part you know that was a pick pack and ship automated distribution center and you were sending it through the mail and then the other 95 96 97% of business was picked up in a store And so your shipping was designed to serve a physical location. You had some home delivery, certainly, but that was mostly big ticket. So you had pretty straightforward supply chain and kind of the last mile to the consumer, where most of it the consumer was doing the work themselves by going to the store to get it. As e commerce has grown and home delivery of all sorts of things has grown, it's become much more complicated. And now we're seeing folks like Target and Best Buy that are, and others certainly doing, you know, curbside pickup, buy online, pickup in store, fulfillment of e-commerce orders through the mail, but from the store stock, the local home delivery, which may be coming from a micro fulfillment center or a larger distribution center, but it might involve somebody, you know, a company or, or a runner going to a store to get it. So this evolving nature of customer demand the kind of escalating battle particularly for the last mile i think is really complicated and it's hard i think i mean it's hard anyway but covid caused some real amplification of things like curbside pickup which i suspect will persist though i don't think in anywhere near the level we saw during during 2020 so it's kind of a moving target to understand where we're going to sort out. But I think the fulfillment and the consumer expectations and the competitive demands just keep kind of ratcheting up. And, you know, there's the ultimate question of what's really the most low cost way of doing it, but at the same time, meeting customer demands and meeting the rising expectations on a competitive scale. So I think it's a particularly Interesting area. I don't think the dust hasn't settled because there's lots of automation opportunities and it remains to be seen really how stores might get reconfigured if they're going to continue to do a very large number of, or a large amount of e-commerce fulfillment from their stores as opposed to kind of the traditional role of stores.
0: Sure, sure. And from the cost standpoint, with all of these different fulfillment models being experimented with or tried out whether you're in COVID or not, even if you just go to the simple example of most consumers now expect things to be shipped to home for free, there is cost there. Who's bearing it? I mean, is it cutting into bottom lines? Is it being sort of masked somewhere else in the sale price? Where do you see that today? And how do you see that playing out in the near future? So my co-host
1: on my podcast, the Remarkable Retail Podcast, Michael LeBlanc, often says that there's different perspectives to how you think about store fulfillment of e-commerce orders. You can think about it as an expensive way to do e-commerce, or you can think about it as a cheap way for customers to get product. And my general belief is that home delivery of things other than big ticket you know which has sort of been set up for one particular model is generally not very profitable for most retailers and right now a lot of retailers are not charging because to your point you know free deliveries sort of become table stakes or you know maybe there's a minimum order value but if you're tending to do frozen refrigerated um smaller orders you're probably losing money on every one you're delivering now robotics and some other things will maybe make that better. But I think there's going to be a push to either raise prices to try to get back some of that additional cost or create incentives for the consumer to come to the store to get it because you know it's always going to be cheaper for the customer to go get it as opposed to paying somebody to take it to the customer. So I think it remains to be seen how this will all sort out and how retailers and you know the supply chain partners and everybody will, will develop a more efficient system. But I do think the train's left the station, so to speak, in terms of just this expectation of faster local delivery, more curbside, more buy online, pick up and store. But the economics of that in general are not terrific. So I think everybody's going to have to try to work to try to make that fundamentally more profitable, or at least not lose as much money as some folks are right now.
0: Right. And I know you have certain clients that you can talk about and others that you can't. Um, But if you could think through a couple examples of retailers who are kind of on the leading edge in terms of working through some of these challenges and some of the ones that, you know, in your article will be left standing and delivering returns and and innovations for the foreseeable future, uh, who would those be?
1: Well, I think there are quite a few. I think if you think about larger retailers, Target, Walmart, Best Buy, Tractor Supply Company, I think they're some of the companies that have really, you know, there There was this, just to back up for a second, there was this narrative kind of goes along with the retail apocalypse narrative that it's not worth investing in stores because everything is moving online. But I think all four of the retailers I named realize that stores can add value, but you just need to, number one, up your Digital and e-commerce capabilities, but more than that, you have to up your. I call it harmonized. Other people call it seamless integration or omnichannel or whatever. But this blending of activity on the part of the consumers and what's needed to be worked out in terms of the supply chain and the integration between stores and digital, like that, was really where there was the potential to serve customers better and even create a competitive advantage. So all of these retailers have been investing very heavily in technology and supply chain and redefining the role of their stores from the traditional role of i go there and i pick out stuff and pay for it and take it home to also playing a critical role in fulfillment so that's really served them well i mean i think one of the reasons why not the only reason but one of the reasons why many of those retailers did very well in covid was when the customers started to shift their behavior to more buying online, more curbside pickup, and more demand for fast fulfillment, they had their stores and their supply chain positioned to do that a lot better than most retailers. What I think is still to be worked out, going back to what I was saying a little bit earlier, is Target talks about, I think you know, 90 to 95% of their e-commerce orders being fulfilled in some way, shape, or form from a store. I have a client in the apparel business that saw a huge shift to fulfilling orders from stores. But it's not a, to my earlier point, it's not clear where that's going to settle out in terms of what customers want. It's not clear, you know, what's going to be economic long-term from a competitive dynamic. And one of the reasons why I think this hybridization is really important is you're probably going to have to reconfigure your stores as well as the way your supply chain is configured to really deal with this this shift, assuming it continues at a high level, maybe not as high as it's been during the peak of COVID. But I think, again, you know, we're, we're moving in this direction where last mile delivery and convenience and consumers expecting to get either product sent to them very quickly or being able to go to the store and, and pick it up very quickly you know how to flex your operations and your physical plant really to do that over the long term is not easy to figure out and you know it's potentially pretty capital intensive which is why i think you're seeing folks like walmart and target put billions of dollars into their stores it's not just to you know change the carpet or paint the walls or put up some new signage
0: right right so plenty of challenges to keep us all busy for the foreseeable future (laughs) yeah i wouldn't i always say you know never even way back
1: when when i first started in retail it was always it was always pretty dynamic and it just keeps seeming to get ever ever more dynamic
0: Yeah, indeed. Well, thanks very much, Steve. I mean, this has been quite interesting to hear sort of an insider perspective on the retailer market and to set it in sort of the longer view that you have, because I know it's been all COVID, 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 uh, but there's (laughs) there's obviously a longer thread here that I think is important to recognize.
1: Well, I'll certainly be uh, happy to not be talking about COVID much in the future, we'll see when that actually happens.
0: Yes, we all look forward to that day. So, okay, well, again, thanks very much for your time today. Really enjoyed meeting you and, uh, and having the discussion. Likewise. Thanks very much. If you enjoyed the conversation today, please share it with a friend and rate us on Apple Podcasts. You can find us online at dhl.com allbusinessnoboundaries no boundaries, and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter at, at DHL Supply Chain. We'll see you next time.